Good morning. Morning. Wow, Senior Sunday. Guys, it is here, Senior Sunday. I can't, can't believe how quickly this school year went by. It seemed like just yesterday we were wrapping up last summer, and then all of a sudden we're heading into this summer. It's crazy. And what a great group of seniors that we have, too. What a great example they've set for our, our younger folks. I always tell them how much I appreciate them just because they make my job easy. Um, just because the, the way that the young guys look up to our seniors has such a great impact, and having such a great group of seniors makes my life easy. You know, preaching is intimidating. It really is. Getting up here, I, I was telling Bill about 30 minutes ago, this is, or no, it's, it's been about an hour now. I'm good. But I told him, this is, you know, this is the time on a Sunday morning whenever I'm preaching that I feel like I'm just going to throw up. And, um, but we're good. We're good. We made it. We're here. We're good. Um, but there are, I will say on top of that, there's, there's some Sundays that just have a little bit more weight to them. And you know, this being Senior Sunday, uh, what would I tell our graduating group of seniors? If this is the only message that I could tell them, what would it be? And then it hit me. Um, Leviticus 13, picking up in verse 40. And senior boys, this is specifically for you. So Logan, Ethan, Nathan, uh, Asa, listen up to you. If a man loses his hair and his head becomes bald, he is still ceremonially clean. And if he loses hair on his forehead, he simply has a bald forehead. He is still clean. So guys, as you get older, those locks that you got right now, those are going to start fading just a little bit. They're going to go away. But you are still ceremonially clean, so you're good. Good to go. Um, I, I especially like how the, the New Living Translation puts it in verse 41. It says, if he loses hair on his forehead, he simply has a bald forehead. Um, pretty good, pretty good. Okay, I'll stop there. I'll let Eric pick up the Levitical law next week. But we're actually going to be in Luke 15. If you'll open up with me to Luke 15. We're going to camp out there for the rest of this morning. A little more, no more Leviticus. Um, I really did put a lot of thought into what I was going to speak about this morning. I've known for a while with Senior Sunday that I would be the one preaching. And so um, I've, been, I've been thinking about it. And, and for quite a while, I, I thought that I was going to be pulling out of a book that I read my freshman year of college. It's called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. It is a fantastic book. It's, it's real small, about 85 pages of what my copy is. And if you open up my copy, more lines are highlighted than not. Um, it's so, so good. And I had planned on doing that. But then um, it's been a, a month or two ago after we finished up the Stand, Strong, or Stand Up, Stand Strong series. Uh, we were also going through that in the youth group. And whenever we finished that up, we started up a new series um, based out of a book uh, that's coming from this, this story right here, the story that we're going to read. And um, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people in here are going to know. The majority of us in here probably are familiar with this because it's one of the more well-known stories. But the book was called The Prodigal God. And um, if you'll remember, a few weeks ago I actually talked about it during communion. I promise I'm not going to just say the same things over again. But it was a fantastic book, and I've been captivated by it. It's The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, and um, Tim is one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite teachers to listen to, and um, sadly, uh, Mr. Keller actually passed away on Friday after a a, a battle with cancer. Um, So I want to try to do as much justice as I can to his work. Um, Whereas we had 13 weeks to go through the Stand Up, Stand Strong series, um, we got one morning this morning, so I'm going to do my best to knock knock this out uh, with doing it justice. 
Um, as I said, this is a story that, uh, if you're there in Luke 15, you can see what it is. It's the prodigal son, the lost son. Um, and it's one that we're familiar with. And one of my fears whenever it comes to stories that we are so familiar with is that we just kind of turn on autopilot, right? Whenever we're reading them, we've, we've read them a hundred times, and we know what it means, we know what it says, and so we don't go super deep into it. We feel like we're already comfortable with it. And so before we dive in this morning, um, I just want for us to take, take a second to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would, would reveal what he has for us in his word. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. And um, Lord, uh, I pray that you would remind us that just the fact that we have your very word here in front of us is a miracle in and of itself. Um, but Lord, we, I, I can be so guilty of just turning on autopilot a lot of the time whenever we do read these stories, and I can just kind of gloss over them. Um, and so Holy Spirit, I, I pray that this morning as you're the one who inspired um, every word in this book, Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would reveal to us what you have for us in this story. Um, Jesus, you said so often, whoever has ears, let them hear. And so, Lord, I, I pray that this morning you would give us ears to hear you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Um, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Then we'll hop down to verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, 
So before we start digging into the parable itself, we've got to jump back to the very beginning. Context is key with anything, anything that we read in Scripture. Context matters so, so much. And so that's why we started at verse 1. And let's see. Verse 1 reads, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So this is our first group of hearers. Our first group of hearers is the tax collectors and sinners. They're the outcasts of society, the one that if you're anybody, you don't associate with them. They're, they're, they're dirty, right? Um, I kind of think of them as like the island of misfit toys from Rudolph. They, they have each other, and they're just there in their own little bubble, and nobody messes with them. Um, and then on verse 2, But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So first group is the tax collectors and sinners. And then the second group is the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And so what we've got going on here is there's two groups hearing Jesus' message, but they're on totally opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Got the tax collectors and sinners over on this side of the, the socially and spiritually uh, just dead, basically, considered by society. And then over here we have the Pharisees and teachers of the law who are the socially and spiritually elite considered by society, and so we've got two totally different groups, uh, but both groups are present in hearing what Jesus has to say. Um, who is Jesus directing this parable to? So that's a different question from who is hearing. Who is he directing it to? If we read carefully, it, it seems like Jesus is actually directing this toward the religious elite, right? It, it says... Um, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Now I'm reading out of the NIV, but many other translations actually use the word, So Jesus told them this parable. It seems like it's in response to what the Pharisees, teachers of the law, are, are muttering amongst themselves that Jesus is telling them this parable. So hold on to this. This is important. Jumping back into the story itself, verses 11 and 12, it says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Um, like I said earlier, whenever you've read something a lot, you just kind of gloss over it. But really, for the people hearing this story for the first time, there's already a couple of shocking things that have happened just in these first couple of sentences. The first one is the younger son's request. So inheritances, they were a thing back then. Whenever, whoa, there's a plant there. Whenever he asks for his share of the estate, um, inheritances were a thing back then. They did exist. How it would have worked is um, the oldest son would have gotten double the amount of every other sibling. So in this case, it would have been split up. Oldest son gets 66%. Uh, younger son gets 33% is what's happening here. So by the, the younger son going and asking for his estate, um, like I said, they're a thing, but... Kind of the important thing to remember with inheritances is that when do you get them? After the owner of the estate has died. And so what the younger son is doing here, basically by going and asking for this, is he's saying, you're dead to me. Like, I, I, I don't want you. I just want what you have for me. Give me what is mine. Even though at that point it's still the father's, right? It's, it's only the son's whenever the father has passed away. And so the younger son is being super, super disrespectful here. That's the first shocking thing. Second shocking thing, just a little bit later on, what does the father do? 
He gives it to him. It says that he divided up the property and gave it to the son. Um, how a lot of the, the, the estate back then would have worked is it would have been caught up in land holdings and livestock. And so it's not like he just had a, a giant pile of money that he went and handed to the son. Um, he would have had to sell off a lot of the land that he owned. He would have had to sell off, well, I guess 33% of the livestock that he owned, right? To be able to give that money to the son. And so not only is this a big financial hit to the father, but it's also a big hit to his reputation. So much of your reputation was tied up in what you had, what you owned, how much power you had, and power was your estate. So the father, patriarch of the family, culturally he was well within his rights to just turn the son away, say, no, no, I'm not going to grant this request. Get out of my face, basically. But he does. He gives it to him. So two shocking things. And then we see what happens. The younger son goes off to a faraway country, and he, he goes and he squanders everything that he has. And um, then it says that he was he hired himself out to a guy with some pigs, and he was feeding the pigs. And then he was hungry and wanted to eat the pig's food. And you, you, know, you know how it goes. And then he comes up with this apology. And picking up in verse 18, it says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So that's his plan. That's his apology. He's not asking to be made a son again. He's just asking simply, basically, give me a job so that I can pay you back what I owe. The, the estate, the amount that you gave to me, let me pay you back for that. So that's his plan. Continuing on in verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So this whole showing, this whole throw the best robe on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, what the father was doing there was he was saying, he's my son again. Uh, he says, he uses the wording, he was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. So he's welcoming him back into the family at this point. So that's kind of act one of the stories, the younger brother. And this is where it's a, it's a good point for us to stop and ask how do you feel at this moment? How do you feel hearing this? Maybe you're feeling something along the lines of, oh, what a, a sweet story. Um, look at how loving the father is, right? Or maybe you're more along the lines of, like, does this dad even have a spine? After everything that the younger son put him through, now he's just welcoming him back with open arms into the family. No, no debts paid, no anything earned back. Um, but remember why Jesus is telling this story. Yes, there's two different groups hearing this, but he's directing it towards the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, which wouldn't be the younger brother in the story. We, we haven't gotten to them yet. And so the purpose of Jesus telling this parable, we'll see here in just a second. They're represented by the, the older brother. So picking up in verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come back, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became hungry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. So what's the older brother's reaction? He's angry, right? Whenever he hears what's happened, he gets super angry. And what does he seem to be worried about? Whenever you read it, it seems like he's worried about the cost of everything. He says, you never even gave me a young goat, yet you killed the fattened calf. The fattened calf would have been the best of the best. Meat was kind of a delicacy back then, and so they wouldn't have had meat with every meal. And so especially the best of the best. Um, I've tried pronouncing this in class multiple times. Is that Wagyu steak? Is that? No, I'm seeing the head shaking No, Y'all know what I'm saying. It starts with a W, and it's the fancy steak. This is the, the fancy steak is what's happening here. Um, and he goes and he kills it for the younger brother who comes back. And then you see the way that the older brother talks about what they've done. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you, slaving for you, and never disobeyed your orders. You see, at the end of the day, both brothers, the younger brother, older brother, they both wanted the same thing. They went about it in very different ways, but they both wanted the same thing. They wanted control, they wanted happiness, and they wanted fulfillment. They looked for it in very, very different ways. Uh, Keller puts it like this in his book. He says, The hearts of the two brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under it. They each wanted to get into a position which they could tell the father what to do. Each one, in other words, rebelled, but one did so by being very bad and the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both were lost sons. And then he continues, Do you realize then what Jesus is teaching? Neither son loved the father for himself. They both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him by either breaking his rules or keeping all of them diligently. This forces us to kind of rethink the way that we think about sin a little bit. We can think about sin simply as, you know, you read in the Bible we have these lists of don't do this. And we can think about sin simply as don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And yes, it's not less than that. We do have that all throughout Scripture, and and Scripture is truth, and so absolutely. But it doesn't just stop there. Keller says, sin is not just breaking the rule, it's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. We see that with the the older son. we, we know Jesus using this example. He's no one's sinless, no one's perfect except for Jesus. But in this example that Jesus uses, he says that the son never disobeyed the father's orders. Um, why? Was he doing it out of love for the father or was he doing it out of love for himself? He, he was doing it so that he could control the father, so that he could say, this is like you owe me this. I, I've been so good, I've done everything that you've asked and you owe me this. So Jesus doesn't divide the world into moral good guys and immoral bad guys, but rather he's showing how the gospel works. This is how the gospel works. One, everyone is wrong. Everyone is wrong. Every last one of us is wrong. Both brothers are wrong. Both methods of being self-serving are wrong. So that's the first part. Second part, everyone is loved. So everyone's wrong. Everyone's loved. Both brothers are loved by the father. What happens whenever the younger brother comes back? Does the father stand up there just tapping his foot, waiting for the son to come up? No, he he runs out after him. He runs out, throws a robe on him, throws ring, sandals. Um, 
we could see the love that the father had for the younger son even after all that. And then with the older brother too, the one that's refusing to come in, that's just being kind of mean to the father, what does he do? He goes out onto the porch and he, he pleads with him, please come, join, join the feast, come join the celebration. And so we could see everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and then everyone is called to recognize that they're wrong, recognize that they're loved, and change because of it. Change because of it. What we see time and time again throughout the story of Jesus is that the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. So as we begin, as we begin to wrap up, I want for us to read back just a little bit in this chapter. You might have noticed that at the beginning we started verses 1 through 3 and then we skipped over to verse 11. Um, so what happened in between? What happened in between that? Jesus tells a couple more short parables. So starting in verse 4, and they're short. It says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So it's pretty easy to identify the similarities between, we got three stories going on. First one, guy loses a sheep. Second one, a woman loses her coin. And then the third one, we've got the son. There's similarities. So the similarities are something's lost, something's found, and then there's a big celebration. They throw a big party for it. There's something missing from the story that we've been focusing on that the first two have. No one goes searching for the son, right? And in the first two stories, whenever the guy loses his sheep, what does he do? He goes searching for it. Whenever the woman loses her coin, what does she do? She sweeps the house for it, yet we're seeing that in this third story, no one goes looking for the sun. And I, I don't think that this was, I, I, I think that this was intentional. By, by Jesus doing it this way, I, I do think that it was intentional. I think that he was calling them to recognize that, that something's wrong by this. So, um, there's that. Nobody goes searching for him. And then something else at this point still yet that's, that's kind of hard to reconcile is the fact that the younger brother just comes back without having to earn his way back in at all. So the misconception that people can walk away from that with is saying that, well, that must mean that you don't have to do anything, right? Like everyone's saved, everyone's good, um, if, if you're just sticking with act one of the younger brother. But that's not the case. Remember that whole thing about inheritances, what I said about um, how they would have been split up is the older brother would have gotten 66%, the younger brother would have gotten 33%. So let's think about it like this. I've got a, got a line graph right here. There's the 100%, and then the younger brother takes his 33%. So at that point, all that's left is the 66% for the older brother, right? And that is the 100% of what the father owns at that point. And so whenever the younger brother comes back in and is welcomed back into the family, it says that he was dead and is alive again, it's like the younger brother is there for the first time. And what happens? That, that 66% that's now the 100% gets cut down even further, so who's paying? Who's paying for this? It's the older brother. The older brother is the one that pays the price for the younger brother being received back. 
So there's two truths that we could take away from this. The first one is mercy and forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. The second one is forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting the forgiveness. So the way that we can think about this is if you come over to my house, say, Eric, you come over to my house, and you break my favorite lamp. Thanks a lot. So you come, you break my lamp, and then if I make you pay for the lamp at that point, like, it's not really forgiveness and mercy as much as you're just paying what you owe me. You owe me the money for the lamp. And so if I make you pay for that, then it's not really mercy and forgiveness. Yet, if I don't make you pay for it, if I show you mercy and forgiveness and I go and I replace the lamp myself, then I'm at a loss. Either way, one of us is at a loss. And so while, yes, it's true, mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the one receiving it, that doesn't mean that there's no cost involved. So as we put a bow on this story, if you haven't heard anything else, if you've been asleep, wake up to hear this. Jesus is the true older brother in our story. He's not the older brother in this story. This, the older brother in this story kind of stinks a little bit. But he is the true older brother in our story. Jesus is to us what the older brother should have been to the younger brother in this story. Just as the man and woman went looking for their sheep and their coin, Jesus came looking for us, right? In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by, being obe- by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He came from heaven to earth. He paid our way. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are the ones who have sinned. We're the ones who our wages should be death. But it says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the question for us is, will we accept this gift or not? Will we accept this gift? This gift is free. This gift is unmerited. There's nothing that we could ever, ever do to earn this gift, or else it wouldn't be a gift. The father doesn't force the younger son to come home. He doesn't force the, the older son to come in the house, right? He, he goes, he extends his love to him, and then he lets them decide, and he gives us the same invitation. So how do we accept God's invitation? Well, we believe. Not just a head understanding, but a heart understanding, a belief in the heart. In Acts 2, whenever Peter addresses the crowd, after everything that's gone down with Jesus, whenever he addresses the crowd, um, he shares with them the good news of Jesus and tells them that Jesus is alive and Jesus is the Lord. And then in Acts 2.37, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Not they heard it and they understood it in their head, but it says that they were cut to the heart. The, the heart is where transformation takes place. Information and transformation are two different things. We can get a lot of head information without any heart transformation. So they ask the famous question after that. After they are cut to the heart, they ask, Brothers, what shall we do? And then we know Acts 2.38 and 39. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So we are saved by our faith in the work of Jesus Christ, period. But that faith demands a response. 
If our faith is true, it demands a response. And the response we see here, repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, live for Jesus. That's what we see in the rest of Acts 2 is the way that they are living in community for Jesus. Our story of the lost sons has a weird ending. If we read all the way through it, but there at the end, we see the, the father pleads, the, the older son fights back, and then the, the, the father says, uh, but we had to celebrate, be glad, because the brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. There's really no ending to the story, right? And the reason for this is because remember why Jesus is telling this parable in the first place. It's in response to the religious elites grumbling going on. It's an invitation. That's what Jesus is doing. Is he's inviting them. He's showing them their place in the story. And he's inviting them, you're outside of the house right now. Come in. Come celebrate. Come sit. Come eat at the table with us. And this invitation is the same one that we have, that we're still getting today. If you're sitting outside on the porch being grumpy, not wanting to come in and celebrate because, well, why did he allow the younger brother back? If that makes you upset and you're refusing to come in, the invitation is still there. The love is still there. Or if you're the younger brother who feels like you're far off and have been wildly living and there's a famine and you're just at the end of your rope, the invitation is there. The gift is free because the price has already been paid. The gift is free to us because the price has already been paid. So what is your response going to be? If you'd like to respond this morning, we ask that you'd come forward as we stand and we sing.